Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to Outward Slate's LGBTQ podcast. I'm Brian Lauder, an editor at Slate, and this week we've got a little bit of an old-school Slate spoiler special about season four of HBO's True Detective, which this time around is subtitled Night Country, and stars Jodie Foster and Kali Race as hard-nosed detectives investigating murder, corporate malfeasance, and mystery in the Alaskan town of Ennis during its period of perpetual night because it's north of the Arctic Circle. So just a little warning to listeners, we are going to be talking about the whole six-episode season, uh, which just wrapped up this past weekend, uh, with a really pretty, let's say, bracing finale might be a good word for it. So if you haven't watched that yet and you plan to, I would save this episode until after you've, you've caught up, and then we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, so why are we going to be talking about this show on the Queer Podcast, you may be asking? Well, that's because as my colleague Madeline Ducharme put it in a recent piece, a thorough investigation has led me to a veritable glacier of evidence that suggests that lesbianism is just as pervasive in the town of Ennis as Cyclops polar bears and mysterious rolling oranges. <laughs> End quote. I am pleased uh, Madeline was able to step over from producing Slate's daily news show, What Next, to unpack that tantalizing sentence for us. Madeline, <laughs> welcome back to Outward. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Um, I hate copaganda, but I do like when the cops are hot dykes beating <laughs> up like bad men who hurt women <laughs> and that is how they get us yeah no, that is how they get us it's totally. really really it's like it's, those... we're really simple creatures i can be pleased pretty easily it's, uh, <laughs> it seems um so just as a quick vibe check uh before we really get into everything how are you feeling after that finale are you feeling shook are you feeling even more sapphic than before <laughs> okay i was 
I was thinking every part of the finale, every development until probably the last 12 minutes were so utterly preposterous that I was mm. just sort of, I was having fun. I was like, this is so silly. And I do think that the original season one of True Detective had a similar feeling where everything was so utterly convincing until we got to the finale and everything got kind of John Wickian, like just so <laughs> ridiculous. That's a good word, yeah. yeah. And uh, then we got to the last like 12 minutes or so and I felt like, Somebody at HBO, like, preemptively in the past read this piece that I wrote, obviously, after they made this show, and they gave me what I wanted. Um, and so that was... There was some time time as a flat circling happening with your piece yes. and, and the writing. <laughs> oh, my God, that's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Madeline, you open your piece, uh, which is titled All the Signs that Point to Lesbianism in True Detective Night Country, with a close reading of the line, We're all in night country now. <laughs> That's the line that I think I need you to share with our listeners and and do that. And then also just remind us sort of who the key players are in your your analysis that are up on your your lesbian corkboard of investigation. Oh, my God. My corkboard. Exactly. <laughs> OK, well, night country to me, uh, because of the certain syllables in that word and because night um, leads me to kind of like think about darkness, think mm. about um cavernous spaces and uh i i do think the first syllable of the word country does sound like something Mm -hmm. that (laughs) lesbians know well uh i i it's just it's good it evokes cunning lingus to me um (laughs) and especially if we're all in it now i think we're all diving in that's exactly where i want to be but this show is um not making that (laughs) for the record (laughs) they are not making this a, a part of their branding at all but the fact that somebody says we're all in the night country now mm-hmm. and the people who he's saying it to are one Jodie Foster Hollywood's right. like lesbian legend mm-hmm. who was like pretty much known as queer before even before she came out um and when she did it was sort of defiant and kind of like yeah I mean Obviously, like she did say she was gay about a thousand years ago back in the Stone Age. And that was (laughs) that was something she said 10 years ago, which I think is Mm -hmm. wonderful. And also to uh, Callie Reese, who I think is just a kind of lesbian wet dream. Mm -hmm. She is so, so gorgeous and uh, tatted up. So, so brawny, big, giant muscles, but has like a very tender and caring face, even mm-hmm. even in spite of the um, sort of menacing dimple piercings, which I don't know if you've ever like held your cheek, but that is a lot of skin to get through. For yeah, piercing. sure. Yeah. And uh, and I mean, who you can't be a queer person without the, the eyebrow slit. Um, I guess I don't have it, but that's because I'm not cool enough. <laughs> so when you hear a quote like that said to these two people, I, mm-hmm. I couldn't help but think like, hmm. What are they speaking to here? Your piece is sort of framed around, like, excavating this, right? Because you you say sure. that um, the show, you have this great turn of phrase, actually, that the show is queerly heterosexual, uh, <laughs> which I, I love. I love that use of, you know, the sort of more traditional use of queer as, like, strange. Like, what, like why is perplexing. it? Perplexing. Perplexing, yeah. Um, so what do you mean by that? And, uh, you know... You, you write, actually, why on earth this show seems determined to sidestep the queerness that threatens to erupt <laughs> in every intense moment on screen. What do you see about that that sort of suppression that's going on? Well, our two main characters are, uh, despite, like, every 
uh, nonverbal signal about mm. them, despite the way that they fill the frame, despite the way they interact with each other. And we can get to that in a second. Um, yeah. They're constantly tracking down men to have like very domineering, intense sex with. Yes. And these are often yes. people they work with, um, used to work with, they might work with in some way. <laughs> and they are, there's a lot of sex in the show actually. And um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's not hot. I think it's, it's good. <laughs> They're good sex scenes, but they are all with men. And it's, um, it was surprising that the two main characters who, for every other signal would point to lesbianism are um, having these like kind of very uh, almost like animalistic, like sex, sexual mm. encounters with um, the men that they are, are in town with. I mean, it seems like the Jodie Foster character has slept with just about everyone's husband. And it's like, it does, right? Yeah, she's like the police chief yeah. who also has enemies with every single woman in town because she sleeps with the teacher here who teaches geology. She sleeps with the police chief down in Anchorage. She's like on, she talks about being on Tinder. She's like clearly prowling for um, Mm -hmm. people's husbands. But you do write in your piece, actually, this is another great line, um, you know, in their dalliances throughout the perpetual night, the men function more like a human dildo for these women uh, who are often on top, which is totally true in terms of just the like blocking of right. the scenes and then like uh, total and total control. So there is, yeah, a, a flipping of maybe what, what would be expected from a normal hetero coupling in that in that regard. I also think that the sex scenes are not really about connection with those men Mm-mm. at all. In fact, mm. they're very much about like blowing off steam. Um, and I do think the men in the show get treated the way that the women of season one get treated, which is that they're sort of there to juxtapose and show how serious our main two detectives are. Everybody else is completely silly, unserious, not taking anything um to the extent that they need to take it to. They're not working hard enough. And I think that our two main characters, Navarro, played by Callie Reese, and um, uh, Danvers, they need somebody who is not thinking about this as seriously as them to be able to, like, <laughs> yeah, to be able to just, like, blow off steam because nobody is as serious as the true detectives. Well, it's like Danvers in particular seems to never sleep or eat <laughs> or like there, right. there's a, like like she's truly only ever working or I think these occasional like you said sort of uh, steam valve release <laughs> like sexual encounters but that's it yeah right because she, because she's so serious all the time yeah let's back up a little bit and talk about the, the relationship between Navarro and Danvers sure. um, I I loved this uh, sort of close reading you do of the the can cabinet scene in the kitchen before i read your piece and was just watching the show for for pleasure i noticed this too as a sort of a sort of strange little little moment of frisson between them so can you talk describe that scene what happens in that scene and then sort of what you get out of it yeah so the thing about danvers and navarro is that they did used to work together and they sort of stumble into working together again because navarro doesn't actually work for danvers's um department it's like the it's like the municipal police and the state state trooper yeah exactly and the show sort of slowly unspools that reasoning and it's because of a shared case they have which we can get to later but um when this story this particular murder and this particular mystery brings them back together um they have a kind of uh bitterness going on but it's Mm -hmm. like a familiar bitterness they they seem 
to know each other really, really well. And one of the things that happens is um, Danforth is really comfortable just like walking herself into anybody's home. Uh, <laughs> she's particularly her... Without uh, a warrant, just like going, yeah. <laughs> just walking in. And uh, particularly the people who are her subordinates at work, she's very comfortable intruding on their personal lives. And um, she sort of busts into Navarro's kitchen, sees that there are groceries on the counter. Navarro has just run out to get, you know, whatever, $20 cans of tuna because they live in the Arctic Circle. Oh, that's right. The prices, the Oreo, it was the Oreos that are like $20. Yeah, Yeah, $20, yeah. (laughs) Danvers, like, is so at home that she starts unloading the groceries and joins her. And there's a moment where she's really maybe, like, a little too mad for (laughs) what the problem was, (laughs) but that sort of, like, just shows how serious she is. Mm. Um, And she's like, did you change where you put the cans? And that is such a, like telling turn of phrase because it Mm -hmm. means I used to know where the cans were and they're not there right now and I'm really mad at you that I don't know where the cans are um and it just it seems to suggest because I don't know where Brian's cans are for example (laughs) even though we've worked together for now almost you know four and a half years the upper left if you ever need to find them (laughs) right (laughs) but you know whose cans I do know where they are Mm, my girlfriend's yes yes Just just putting that out there. Um, I definitely know where her cans are. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing you might know if you woke up in the morning after a very, very beautiful night together mm-hmm, and you're looking mm-hmm. to get a caffeine fix. You're digging around right. in the closet or digging around in the cabinet for the coffee and you see, right. hmm, okay, the cans are there. I'm going to keep that in mind. And that's also something you might learn after a few visits, a few mornings <laughs> at Yeah, maybe you're, maybe you're even going to make, you know, try to make some pancakes or something and you're like, where's right. that? Right. I need the Bisquick. The Bisquick, right. Where is the Bisquick? No, totally. I mean, I think, I think you're reading, that was really a striking moment between them that I think is probably, probably should be one of the biggest, like, you know, data points on your corkboard. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Because it, yeah, because it's truly, truly odd uh, otherwise. Okay, so going further along, there's a discussion between Denver's and Navarro when they're, I think they're driving somewhere, and they're sort of talking about their, like, past hookups and that kind of thing. And Danvers asked Navarro if she's gone back to girls. Right. So this, I, I believe, is the most uh, explicit uh, reference that we get um, in the show to that to that moment anyway. So tell us a little bit about that. It's a full HR violation, by the way, to like <laughs> yes, well, your subordinate. The show is not a place to look for a model of uh, workplace safety and fairness. But it's kind of a sexy little HR violation. It's a mm. tease. It's like the kind of thing that I feel like we might say to, you know, a, a past lover, a past paramour who has mm. now like... Um, getting into a little heterosexual nonsense um, very obviously <laughs> and you might say like oh yeah well you still up to that with him I mean and he's a very sweet guy we like Kavik the guy that um, Navarro yes, we is do. hooking Kavik, up with Kavik is the sweetest oh my god such a sweetie yeah. pie one might even say kind of like a very thoughtful sweet lesbian but that's uh-huh. <laughs> neither here nor there <laughs> but um, it's I mean it obviously gestures towards the fact that Navarro has had relationships with women, um, mm. sexual, romantic, unclear how serious any of them were, but she definitely has. And actually, in the episode that followed um, the publication of this piece, she <laughs> was talking to Navarro about Navarro's sort of like teen stepdaughter who's been acting out. And right, she's right. like, well, she's got this girlfriend, is what Danvers says. 
And Navarro was like, oh, who cares? I had, I've had dozens. I have plenty of those or whatever. And I was like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Picking it up. So mm-hmm. she's definitely into women. And um, I just think if my boss or former boss was comfortable enough to say something like, oh, have you gone back to girls now? Um, I don't know. It suggests that maybe that kind of teasing is coming from a place that's not just mm-hmm. HR violation, workplace dynamic. It's coming from a place of like, I can tease you about that because we once had a connection. Like we have some way. kind of history. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Kind of I love yeah. teasing my like exes. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's like it's a fun, silly thing to like poke fun at them and their new um, connections because you, you know, had been there first, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. Let's take a quick break here, and then when we come back, I want to talk about the figure of the mommy. We will just take a quick break, and we'll be back with Madeline after that. All right, we're back. So like I said, um, later on in your piece, Madeline, you bring up the figure of the mommy in sort of lesbian culture, which is the equivalent for the gays out here of the daddy, which makes sense, right? And you ascribe this in particular in the the context of of this show to Danvers. Talk about that, because I thought that was such a smart reading of of her like vibe in general and just what she's up to. Um, And tell us about the mommy, because I think we all need to learn about it. Yeah, I actually think I wrote this paragraph as a refutation of the argument that somebody might make about this dynamic to be like, no, she's really more of like a a maternal figure. Mm, And actually, mm. the actors themselves have said, um, I think it was Callie Reese who said, like, Danvers is really maternal um, and has like a maternal posture towards Navarro. And I actually think that's part of the sexual dynamic Mm, they have. mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think... um, gay mentorship between two romantic partners is something that is just like completely a part of lesbian and gay culture. And I do think um, I stole the the idea of the mommy with M-O-M-M-I-E from a great piece that was written in Autostraddle in 2017. Uh And they were really interested in the mommy as a character who is like um, an actual mother, which Danvers actually is too, but is um, really put together, really beautiful characters like the women in Big Little Lies are kind of mommies. Um, uh, uh-huh, but uh-huh. I actually think the Danvers version of the mommy is much, much sexier. You know, instead of being, <laughs> um, you know, I don't know, wearing like Prada to pick up your kids from school, she's kind of hyper competent. She's prickly. She uh, is. She, she has everybody just in the palm of her hand. Like she's mm-hmm. so powerful in her workplace. You know, one of her younger charges is a new-ish dad his kid seems to be like two or three and his wife they're both very young they're probably in their early 20s his wife is trying to go to school and he can just be like like there's a snap and danvers can get him to like show up to the office totally sit and watch corpses like melt Melt in the the ice ring in the ice (laughs) ring oh my god yeah you're a dad but somehow you are more beholden to mommy. That's the mommy, crazy. mommy's calling. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think there's also a, there's a little moment. I'm really close reading now, real corkboard feeling, <laughs> but there is a little moment where um, Jodie Foster, who is very small. I think she's about five one is trying to reach for some coffee that is like on top of a cabinet in the station. And 
she doesn't even like use words, but she sort of snaps at a, a nameless uh, <laughs> cop who's sitting just outside. The oh kitchen. yes, 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 and, yes. And like gets him to like snaps and kind of points, and he just like immediately rises and grabs the coffee and hands it to her. <laughs> like she's powerful, and mm-hmm. I mean she's got a gun. That's kind of sexy in TV, not in real life. Yeah, but you yeah, know what yeah. I mean. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I also symbolically. Think yeah, I also think the um, the Fiona Shaw character, who doesn't have a ton to do <sighs> besides be kind of wise <laughs> yeah. and, and put out a beautiful Christmas spread, um, she is like a mommy goat to me. You know, there's a great mm-hmm. scene in Fleabag where she has a very small part in season two of Fleabag where the main character, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, um, is talking about wanting to fuck the priest, the hot priest. Oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Fiona Shaw has this, like, indelible line that I, like, always think of, which is the, are you sure you want to fuck a priest or do you want to fuck God? (laughs) (laughs) And she says it so casually. Fleabag says back, can you? Can you fuck God? And she says, oh, yes. (laughs) And there's something about her that I've always um, felt drawn to in a way that I was like, oh, this woman knows all. She knows all in Fleabag. She knows all in Night Country. She's she's mommy, you know? She, she's totally mommy. No, I, I, the only regret really that I had about this series uh, in terms of length, because there's only six episodes, like I mentioned at the top, I felt like there should have been like another, just maybe one more episode that was sort of a capsule episode about her character. Because yes. I love... I what love is she her. doing there? What's she doing? She's being kind of like a witch or something, like up in the like. Yeah, she seems to kind of rise above the Ennis bullshit that is happening that everybody else is so steeped in, and that in and of itself is kind of appealing and alluring. And she has a dynamic with Navarro that like is kind of never explained. I was sort mm-hmm. of perplexed by it, mm-hmm. but um, it made me envious. I was like, I want a Fiona Shaw that I can go shack up with on Christmas Eve because I'm alone and devastated and she's going to have like crudite and, and tea, and, and, tea yeah. and brandy and like wearing this sexy velvet dress. It's like <laughs> she wasn't expecting you. Why is she so glamorous because just she's, for herself? Because she's mommy and mommy gets to have all of that exactly. all the time. <laughs> so let's see. One, of, one thing that you pick up on in your piece, which I think is important to mention before we end is that there's also just sort of due to the indigenous setting of this of the show in Alaska there's a matriarchal kind of culture that's like shown to us too especially I'd actually say in the in the final episode do you just want to talk a little bit about about that aspect of the show and how how this sort of you know fits fits within what you're arguing yeah absolutely I think that there is a really beautiful scene um i actually think it's like one of the best scenes of the whole show even though it's a little bit more incidental to the actual mystery um and i actually wish the show was longer so we could get more scenes like this that are just they're giving you texture of all these characters yeah, um, including yeah. one of our season's murder victims um and it's navarro shows up to arrest one of the season's murder victims back when she was alive um and she's like really dead set on arresting her for protesting at the mine. And Mm -hmm. there's like pollution issues happening. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a very righteous thing that the character did. Um, And where she finds her is this birth center where a woman an Inupiaq woman, woman is going to give birth. And um, Navarro's kind of stunned by it. And, And it's only women there. There's no other like, father and figure involved it's really just like 
probably half a dozen women who are all really supporting and taking care of each other and um, bringing into the world like a whole new person. And I think there's this 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 bond that you can feel among the women of that community, which is an important bond to like set the standard for because of the finale. I mean, like we said, the finale was getting pretty preposterous. They kill the character that seems to have the only information. Right. Uh, It's like, what is going on? Um, And there's still, you know, 25 minutes left. And it's like, okay, well, somebody's going to explain to me what happened here. Um, And through a series of also ridiculous, Ex, you know, explanations and things like yeah, that. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. They find a, a definitive fingerprint that seems to lead them to back to the women who were the like cleaners. Yeah, of yeah. The, the local yeah mm-hmm. research station, and then we get a sort of awesome, I guess, kind of John Wickian. Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> like sequence where one of the women is telling a story, quote unquote, even though I'm she's revealing the truth, obviously. Um, and in which these women have banded together to avenge their, um, the murder of their yeah friend. Yeah, yeah. The murder of their friend. Exactly. And they do so in ways that are like deeply emasculating. They kind of force yeah. them into corners. They hold guns to them and force them to undress and they give their friend, their murdered sister, the opportunity to killed them sort of through a metaphysical ghost kind of thing yeah they're like either either she'll take if she wants them she'll take them and if she doesn't they're closer here they can come back (laughs) and we'll see what it's great i mean yeah it's super great and and that whole sequence is shot in such a way that is like you kind of relish it um and it's and it was the only moment where i was like oh this rocks actually this this finale is amazing (laughs) everything else was a little bit messy and un you know un I don't know. I couldn't wrap my head around most of it, but this sequence was delicious. It was delicious, and it, and it, yeah, and again, it was it was this you know very powerful moment of the the local indigenous community like sort of exercising power right against yeah. against the the settler um, colonial folks that represented by the the scientists. So we do have an ending that I like a, the actual very end of of the series that I think probably goes on the corkboard. And we can we can sort of end, end our discussion there. But I'm curious. So we have, um, you know, it seems like it, it does get a little hard to follow what's really happening, and what's not. But it seems like uh, at the very end, um, Navarro has sort of disappeared. She had, you know, for a long time, she'd said she felt called to kind of wander out into the ice and, you know, whatever that meant, like kind of, I, I don't know exactly um, join like join like, like the spirit, spirit w- the world. spirit yeah. world. Yeah, that's kind of what she seems. She was sensitive to, to spirits, and then, but we're not sure. But so there's a there's a moment where Danvers rather is going around and looking for her, and she's gone. Doesn't know she's there, and then we get this final scene where Danvers is at like her beach house. I don't know where, where that yeah, house it's is kind exactly. Of a lakeside cabin. Yeah, and it's summertime, and it looks really beautiful. Like you have a mm-hmm. um, back patio where you can like sip coffee and and look out on the water. And she brings out her coffee and sits sits on a couch and then suddenly Navarro is there standing on the deck also. Materializes and walks towards her. <laughs> yes. And so I'm curious uh if you think that that means, you know, that they're 
are they together? <laughs> like, right. Or, or is this, is it the spirit of Navarro sort of just visiting Danvers and maybe Danvers doesn't even see her? Because they are kind of blocked, like, somewhat far apart. I don't know. Right. But Danvers does say it's Ennis. No one ever really leaves. She does say that. Yes. Yes. And it's very like American Horror Story, like murder house. Like no one can, <laughs> no one gets away. <laughs> I know. She said it like it was like a warm thing to say, but it was actually kind of, <laughs> kind of distressing. Um, but I think because she's saying, you know, uh, she never, she, you never really leave and no one really knows what happened to her, even though it seems to suggest, I mean, it's clearly one of those things where it's like, well, it could be either. Which yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I, I can take or leave those. But the fun thing about that is. Okay, well then they're obviously married and living together, and they're gonna stay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're gonna be there forever in their beautiful little lakeside cabin. <laughs> um, even though I think the show would rather it be that she's a ghost, like looking after her in the from the afterlife, which I also um, think is kind of gay. But <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is super gay. Yes, because <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's funny because it suggests that they had like um, that they really liked each other. Because mm. if you're if you're gonna be in the afterlife and you're going to look after somebody, it would be somebody you love, right? Sure. But I don't even think these two women like each other very much. They just have a lot of tension and they definitely, <laughs> like, had some kind of very personal connection. Um, so the thought that, like, the ghost the, the ghost herself would stick around to, um, <laughs> to like, watch over. Yeah. Was, it, it didn't, it, it, the, it wasn't quite the right chord to strike, but maybe now that they've solved the case, they can just be together i don't yeah. know <laughs> i think i think the official outward position will be that they are uh married it could be on this physical plane it could be on the spiritual plane but they are together forever i like that idea I think, <laughs> totally i think they need a break and <laughs> that looks like a good place to have it exactly i think everything is adding up on the cork board to say the show is very lesbian i'm very curious to hear if our listeners agree Please reach out, as always, to outwardpodcast.slate.com to let us know what you thought about True Detective. We thought it was pretty fun um, and and very, very gay. Speaking of gay, uh, Madeline, I think you may have brought us a gay agenda item uh, to share before you, before you leave. Please do. Okay, so an update to the gay agenda that I have is there's an excellent documentary, and it is unfortunately on Tubi, or maybe fortunately, because that means you can get it for free. But I do think you put something on Tubi and it becomes, it has the veneer of like, oh, that's a Tubi movie. And like, <laughs> it, means like it's, it means it's garbage and it's thrown together in uh, 15 seconds or whatever. But it's a documentary that's called um, Shattered Glass. And it was created by the uh, Women's National Basketball Association's Players Association. So that is their union. Um, and this is crossing, that happens to cross over in a lot of my interests. I <laughs> got very into the WNBA and I actually wrote a piece about getting very into the WNBA. You did, um, yes. You can find that on Slate.com. And uh, I also am a part of our union here at Slate. I am very interested in labor politics. And the show, the, the documentary follows three women in the WNBA, two of whom are queer. And um, it follows them very closely about the sort of priorities that they have for their next contract and um, what they want for themselves, for their partners, for their families. And I think these two women that are queer that they that the show or that the, um, the documentary follows are just fascinating, mm. dynamic, mm-hmm. beautiful. Um, amazing people they're amazing athletes but they're also just 
I felt so close to them watching this documentary and thinking about their union fight and thinking about yeah, um, yeah. the things that they, they want to work for. You know, something as like <clears throat> unsexy as a pension. There's a, <laughs> right. there's a moment where the sort of reigning MVP, her name is um, Brianna Stewart. She has two children and her, her wife was actually pregnant at the time of the finals and like had the baby like just a few days after her team was in the finals. And it's like, you can feel the sort of excitement. Um, They have two children and she's like, I can't believe we don't have a pension. We need a pension. And there's this urgency um, to it. And there's something so powerful about hearing this like athlete, this woman, this mother, this like lesbian advocating for something that they deserved long, long before Totally, this. yeah, yeah. And, and so I loved it. I just think everybody should watch it. I think it's a really interesting insight into labor politics. People don't think about athletes as workers, but they are. But and they, they are, unions. absolutely should, yeah. yeah. And um, there's also just like a lot of really sweet gay moments between, yeah, Brianna Stewart, her wife, her two kids, and um, John Quell Jones, who is also the other queer woman featured, and her fiance. They have very sweet moments. And oh, it's worth it just to watch it for that. Oh, that sounds like it's called Shattered Glass on TV. Everyone go check that out. Yes, pensions are not sexy until you start drawing on them, and then I think they become very sexy. That's the sexiest <laughs> thing. Put it in your Tinder bio. Yeah. I'm 6'5", and I have a pension from Slate. That's it. <laughs> um, all right, Madeline, thank you so much again for coming. Th- first, thank you for writing this wonderful piece, because I think you really did the, the important detective work on this season of True Detective, uh, but also thank you for coming on the show. If you want to check out that piece again, it is called All the Signs That Point to Lesbianism in True Detective Night Country by Madeline Ducharme. Madeline, as always, thanks for coming on Outward. We love having you. Thanks so much, Brian. This was really fun. All right, that is it for our show for this week. Please send us feedback and topic ideas as always at outwardpodcast.slate.com or you can hit us up on Facebook or X at Slate Outward. Just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you can get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Working, and you will never ever hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more about that, go to slate.com slash outwardplus. Our show is produced by Palace Shaw. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends, family, lovers, everybody about it. Rate and review the show so that others can find it. We always appreciate that. And until next time, everybody, stay gay.